Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In the last episode, we discussed the interaction between Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 25. You may recall that Jacob the trickster cheats Esau out of his birthright, and we discussed that this is not just a story about two enemy brothers, but also a story about Jacob who becomes Israel's interaction with the people of Edom, the ancestors of Esau. When viewed through this lens, the story becomes a story about the bigger, more powerful nation lordering it over little Israel. And Israel has to use cunning and trickery to steal the birthright away from Edom. We said that this is not necessarily an immoral thing, but rather it's what you do when you're oppressed, when your enemy is stronger than you, and you've got no one to intervene, you have to outsmart them. And we talked about Jacob outsmarting Esau by exploiting his desire and his mimetic rivalry. We'll return to Jacob and Esau in the next chapter, but for now, for today, we're going to look at chapter 26, which continues Isaac's story. So let's continue reading from chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Don't go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I will show you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring... All the nations of the land shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Although Isaac and Rebekah have been promised all the blessings of Abraham, they struggle to conceive children. And now their family is threatened by a famine in the land. So, like Abraham his father before him, Isaac goes to dwell in Gerar, with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. In what follows, history repeats itself. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was so attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then can you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year one hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. 
Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. The son Isaac imitates his father's conduct. And we often see that in life. Children are often like their parents because for the first 10, 15, even 20 years of their life, who's their primary model? Who do they imitate? How do we learn how to think, speak, act, and get along in the world? The answer is our parents. And in this story, we see Isaac following in the footsteps of his father, Abraham. Actually, the passage here has just told us that he will inherit all of those blessings that were promised to his father. And so here we see Isaac becoming an extension of Abraham, if you like. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Isaac continues Abraham's non-mimetic contact throughout his lifestyle. And in so doing, he's going to inherit all the blessings of his father. Rather than engaging in mimetic rivalry with the men of the land over the possession of his wife, Isaac claims that he is not a potential suitor as he pretends that Rebekah is his sister. Now we're told that Rebekah is very beautiful, just as we were told Sarah was very beautiful. Again, beautiful in the eyes of who? Beautiful in the eyes of Isaac. He thought Rebekah was just the bomb. He thought she was absolutely gorgeous. And she was convinced that once he enters into the land and the other men of the land see how beautiful she is, at least in his eyes, then they will see what desire he has for his wife and they will also come to desire him. So in other words, Isaac, like his father Abraham, is scared of the mimetic conduct of the people in Gerar because he is worried that they will imitate his desire for his wife Rebecca, and that will kindle a desire with them and bring them into mimetic conflict with him as they fight to gain possession of her. Isaac doesn't want to become an obstacle to the mimetic desires of the men of Gerar, so he says that Rebecca is his sister, which means they cannot engage in rivalry with him because he's not a potential suitor who is struggling and striving to obtain Rebekah for himself. However, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, looks out of his window and sees Isaac laughing. Literally, the word is Isaac's name, Yitzhak. He's Isaacing with his wife, Rebekah. Again, there's a wordplay here. Probably within the context, we assume it's a sexual thing going on. Perhaps they are making little Isaacs. In any case, Abimelech observes some sort of intimate contact between Rebekah and Isaac, which would have been inappropriate between a brother and a sister. It showed that there was something much deeper between Rebekah and Isaac than he was letting on. Much like he did to Isaac's father, Abraham, Abimelech rebukes Isaac for his reckless actions and forbids any man from pursuing a romantic relationship with Rebekah. In this incident, Isaac imitates his father's extreme non-mimetic behavior, even to the point of giving up his wife to other men. 
In the ancient Near East, a man's wife was considered to be his most precious possession, and giving her up to another man severely diminished one's honour and social standing. You see, honour and social standing are all tied up in one's relationship and possession of his wife. If another man takes control of her, one is shown to be weak and less than a man. It was unheard of for the Philistines to just let someone else take their woman because tied up in that marital relationship was everyone's honor and respect, which they were all striving to take hold of and to maintain. For the ancient reader then, Isaac's actions are extremely countercultural and non-mimetic. Ironically, by clinging to his wife, his monogamous relationship with her is secured. We've seen this pattern also in the life of Abraham, who receives blessing and honor by stepping off the mimetic treadmill and giving up his pursuit of those very things. In a similar way, Isaac's imitation of his father's non-mimetic lifestyle brings blessing and honor to his life. Abimelech asks Isaac to leave his land, fearing that Isaac might one day turn against him. In this way, Abimelech identifies Isaac as a dangerous foreign threat to his desired object of political stability and sends him away as a scapegoat. Reading on now from verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. He gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Ezek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not. For I am with you, and will bless you, and will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built there an altar, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah his advisor, and Phicol the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, Why have you come to see me, seeing that you hate me, and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. And he made him a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and he departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told them about the well they had dug, and said, We have found water. He called it Sheba, 
Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. In this chapter, famine forces Isaac to move to Gerar, but the king soon asks him to move on. Having been sent out to the valley of Gerar, Isaac seeks to begin a new life for himself and Rebekah. He begins by rebuilding the wells, which his father Abraham originally dug, but the herdsmen of Gerar had filled in, following Abraham's death. Isaac even restores the names that Abraham originally gave to the wells. Now, in ancient Near East, naming things was an act of creation. Once you named something, you said what it was, and in a sense, it became that thing. With this in mind, it's significant that Isaac gives these wells the same names that his father Abraham used to call them. It's like Isaac's digging back into his past. He's revisiting his old tradition and the tradition of his father to try and find his identity. Isaac's been forced out of his home by famine, and now he's been forced out of the place where he took refuge, and he's been forced into this valley of Gerar. He's asking questions. Who is he? Who is his God? What defines him? And he's going back, revisiting the tradition of his fathers to answer that question. Remember that wells represent prosperity and a new beginning throughout the Genesis narrative. Remember that it was by a well that the Lord sees Hagar and intervenes for her when she is most desperate. Also, it was this same well in Beersheba that Abraham quarreled with Abimelech over in the earlier narrative in Genesis chapter 21. Now, here we have Abraham and Isaac. Both of them are arguing with this leader, Abimelech, over this well. After being rebuked by him for giving up their wives to the men of the land, and both narratives report that it's for this reason, this oath between either Abraham or Abimelech in Genesis chapter 21, or between Isaac and Abimelech in Genesis chapter 26, that the city is called Beersheba, that is the well of an oath to this day. So we have two very similar stories about patriarchs. We have the naming of the place twice. What's going on here? One explanation is that these two stories are what scholars call doubles of each other. In other words, they probably stem from the same story, the same things going on, but they're two different versions of the story. One report these events happening to Isaac and Rebekah. Another version reports it happening to Abraham and Sarah. So that's one way to explain what's going on here, why the story gets told twice with two different patriarchs. They're doubles, they're two different traditions of the same story. Why are they both in Genesis? Well, the argument goes something like, well, there's these two different traditions, they're both respected, and in order to draw people together from both traditions, both of these stories are integrated into the one narrative. Another way to look at it, and the way that I've taken on this podcast, is to say the father is like the son. There's imitation, and the father is being created in the image of the son. And that's why he's walking the same path. He's going to end up at the same journey. He's going to be blessed. He's going to be prosperous. 
And on his way there, he will tread this path, which is exactly the same as his father, Abraham, who's gone before him. As I mentioned earlier, Isaac attempts to follow in the footsteps of his father, Abraham, by redigging the wells which the Philistines had filled in. His endeavor takes some work, but it eventually pays off. When Isaac's servants discover a spring of living water. In the Hebrew, the term living water can simply mean a spring of running water. But when we're mindful of the word plays we've seen throughout this narrative so far, for example, Jacob clutching at the heel in the last episode and Esau being red, Edom and hairy, Isaac appears to have found something life-giving in the legacy of his father Abraham. He has found the water of life, the magic elixir, if you like. In previous podcasts, we've talked about Abraham's role as a hero of non-mimetic behavior. Abraham's non-mimetic lifestyle is the legacy which gives life and prosperity to Isaac when he redigs his father's wells. We see this non-mimetic lifestyle play out in Isaac's interaction with the herdsmen of Gerar. When these herdsmen claim that the well belongs to them, Isaac simply moves on to another site and then another until the herdsmen finally leave him alone. You see, the herdsmen observe Isaac's peace and prosperity. They see that he's rich and we're told that they envy him. They want to become just like him. They want to be successful, rich and famous, just like Isaac. So they begin to imitate him. And as they imitate Isaac, attempting to become like him, they begin to imitate his desire for his father's legacy. This new desire prompts the herdsmen to engage in mimetic rivalry with Isaac over this common desired object. But rather than clinging to this object of desire, the well, and mirroring the herdsmen's desire back to them, Isaac simply walks away. Isaac has to go through this process twice, refusing to engage in mimetic rivalry with the herdsmen. Without any mimetic input from Isaac, the rivalry fizzles and the herdsmen direct their desires elsewhere. This is how mimetic desire operates. If Isaac had have dug his heels in and engaged in mimetic rivalry with the herdsmen over the well, the herdsmen desire for the well would have grown as the herdsmen mirror Isaac's desire back to him and the two imitate one another's desire and the well becomes the coveted object over which they engage in rivalry with one another. Having named the first two wells contention and enmity, Isaac names the third well Rehoboth, which means ample space. Remember, this third one is the one that the herdsmen didn't fight with him over. Isaac is a refugee who was forced out of his home by famine, and now he wanders through Gerar looking for a place to settle. Remember, Abimelech kicks him out into the valley. Abimelech and his herdsmen view Isaac with suspicion, probably because he is a foreigner. Mimetic behavior draws our tribe together as we imitate one another and find a common identity in so doing. Yet this identity is built at the expense of those outside our tribe. As an outsider, Isaac is viewed as a potential threat. 
he talks differently, dresses differently, and even worships a strange foreign god. For this reason, Isaac becomes the other against which Abimelech's people define themselves. By directing their memetic rivalries towards Isaac and collectively expelling him from their presence, Abimelech and the people of Gerar experience peace and they are drawn together. And it's funny, at the end of the story, he lets on like he's treated him well and been kind and generous to him. But at the end of the day, he sent him away as a scapegoat because he was fearful of him. We play the same games in our own modern politics. We view asylum seekers with fear and suspicion because we view them as the dangerous other. There's a power in breaking down the walls of separation between us to see that behind all the differences lies a human just like us who seeks love, safety and nourishment. That is what Isaac is looking for in this narrative, but no one wants to allow him space to find it. In this moment of realization, the walls that divide us come crashing down as we see the God of the victim in the eyes of the oppressed. Once we see this God in the face of the refugee, we can then begin to talk about how we treat asylum seekers. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.